a good six months of hardcore six times a day feeding lots of temper tantrums um and then after that little by little um i started seeing emma's real true personality shine back through i mean i can remember i think the first time she said you know i love you mom or she smiled or she laughed after we started this whole process it was just a huge breakthrough You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. Now, last week we had um, Emma Cunningham on the show and Emma is 15 years old and she spoke about her experience with family-based therapy and how she believes that family-based therapy pretty much saved her life. It's a really great episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to Emma talk if you have not done so already. So just put this one on pause and then go back, listen to Emma first, because today we're following that with her mum, Amy. And Amy's going to tell you about her side of family-based therapy as the caregiver, the parent, um, how the family did it, and lots of other things besides Now, I've actually known Amy via social media for probably pushing four years now, This is the first time, I think, that we've managed to get together to speak on the phone. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is that I have this brilliant excuse to actually get people on the phone rather than all of the texting and email that we do. We are both members of International Eating Disorder Action, and Amy has very much spearheaded a lot of the advocacy work that happens in the eating disorder world today. Um, She was right at the head of the the first World Eating Disorder Action Day that happened last June. And um, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to her. Now, Amy's in Tanzania when we speak. Uh, The Skype connection was appalling. So if it gets a bit crackly, then cut us a little bit of slack. It was a long-distance chat. Did the best that I could to patch together the pieces. We did cut out a few times, but I think we did a pretty good job and we got some fabulous information. Here's the podcast. The first thing I asked Amy was to tell me a little bit about herself and her experience, her journey through eating disorders as both a sufferer, a survivor, and then a parent caregiver. My name is Amy Cunningham, and I'm a mom of five children. Um, I work in Africa, in Tanzania, which is a country in East Africa. Um, And I've been in East Africa for now 16 years in Tanzania and another country, Uganda, right next door, and also spent some years in West Africa, um, also uh, involved in public health work. So my story um, kind of backing into it is that I got involved with eating disorder advocacy work and other kind of outstanding speaking out about eating disorders when my 11-year-old daughter, Emma, who was just, uh, um, did a podcast with with you, Tabitha, last week, um, or I guess it's going to be published this week, um, when she was diagnosed with anorexia. And that kind of catapulted everything into action. Um, And it's kind of interesting because I have five kids, um, and I was married twice. So my first husband and I had three children, none of whom have an eating disorder. And then my second two children, last children, with my second husband, both developed anorexia. 
And I myself developed anorexia at about the age of probably 16, which without any treatment at that time, so this is more than 30 years ago, um, it really was challenging and very, very difficult and very, very scary. Um, there really weren't any resources. Um, I was a pretty smart kid and sort of self-diagnosed. I was about 16, I think, when I, if I'm looking back now, I sort of developed kind of symptoms of depression and anxiety. And that kind of came as a surprise because I was always a really happy kid and um, had a pretty normal, happy life. Uh, went to university and immediately started um, dieting, which we know now is a huge mistake and can often lead into eating disorders for people who have some genetic predisposition. Um, of course, I didn't know anything about genetics back then, and I think no one really knew about it. And sure enough, within a couple of months, um, I was really en enmeshed, I guess, in this eating disorder, which I really didn't know anything about. Um, kind of percolated along for six or eight months or more, and by the time summer came along, um, I was really sick. I should have been hospitalized. Um, but of course, nobody really knew what was going on, and I was, I guess, never so that um, my parents were that that concerned, um, or maybe they were a bit concerned or thought I was going through a phase. But I think one of the hard things with older kids and young adults is that they're off in the world doing their own thing, and it's really tough to know whether this is, um, at least back then, it was really tough to know whether this was something serious or you know, just a little bit of too much dieting or what have you. But anyway, so I uh, was very much a restricting anorexic um, then for about a year and a half. Um, ended up dropping out of college because I really couldn't function uh, emotionally or physically, um, starving myself that way. Um, evolved kind of into binge eating disorder um, and then into bulimia, which I um, was really quite ill Um I would say, for a good five, four or five years, um, developed symptoms of suicidal ideation, not knowing what the heck's going on with me, but yet spending most of my days um, eating and throwing up while also trying to hold down a job. And I got married at about 22. And of course, when you're married and in a really intimate relationship with someone, um, you can't keep secrets like that. So the stress of trying to keep this a secret um, while continuing these behaviors and trying to hold down a normal life, normal job, etc., really caused me to go into a tizzy. And I thankfully had enough wherewithal to do something when I, when I realized I was having these suicidal ideations. It really, really scared me. Um, and I, checked, I was in the military, actually. Um, that's the interesting about, thing, thing about eating disorders is they really can divert your life course. And that also causes a lot of stress. So I was on track to being a performance um, musician. I play the French horn. Of course, could not function academically or musically being so caught up in this eating disorder. Um, and at some point dropped out of school, decided to join the military, thinking that would give me so much structure and, you know, my eating disorder would go away. Of course, that didn't happen. Somehow, I still managed to function at a pretty high level. Um, got married uh, a year or so later and 
then with everything kind of coming together in a vortex, I checked myself into a psych ward in the military. And um, I guess that was probably the beginning of my healing process. Even though that experience was pretty terrible uh, with the very initial interaction with the then, um, I guess the head of the psych ward who was a medical doctor, psychiatrist saying, you'll never be cured. This, this is, the, I've seen so many cases like you and you're never going to get better. And I was a bit stubborn, so I didn't believe him and kind of thought, well, um, screw him. I'm just going to go on anyway. And that break, kind of the intermission of, of being able to stop the behaviors for even just a few weeks was a way to start getting better. But still, it was a good probably 10 or more years uh, before I, or actually closer to probably 15, before I would say I was really on a really solid track to recovery. Um, I, I just sort of learned to live with my bulimia and it became less important to me over time. I feel very, very lucky that I didn't um, get worse or die or have any other super serious negative health effects. So fast forward um, several children later and um, being in a very healthy place, um, my fourth daughter developed anorexia and I noticed some odd behaviors um, of kind of obsessive compulsive type behaviors and mood changes and again our doctor said well you know maybe it's just normal she's a preteen or teenager and she's just going through this change and what have you we live in Africa of course um, have great a great medical doctor who's known our family for a very long time but it's hard to really understand eating disorders um, in general. And I think if you haven't had specialized training, it's pretty difficult to easily diagnose them. So this would have been in, say, 2008. And a few years later, um, sure enough, she catapulted into anorexia. Again, at that time, there's still not a lot of data or research out there. So we kind of did a more traditional approaches of her meeting with a psychiatrist and a nutritionist and a nurse. And um, looking back now, really, she needed it much more intensive treatment, but luckily is, is doing well. Um, and she's now older and, and kind of taking control of her life, um, and has had some support along the way, of course. But what really, really kind of lit a fire under all of us and made our family get involved in advocacy was, uh, Emma getting sick. So at age 11, very, very quickly, within a couple of months, started restricting food and obsessing over being fat, thinking she was fat, um, looking in the mirror all the time. Um, she started skipping meals. Um, I knew some of it. I observed some of it. But but I even, you know, it's interesting, even with my own history and with the fact that one other child was sick, um, I, st I guess I still... I just wasn't sure whether this was really an eating disorder. Um, luckily, um, we started being able to access information about family-based treatment and the Maudsley method, which was pioneered in England quite a few years ago and for which there's a, a good amount of data on um, and showing the benefits of Maudsley. So I started learning a lot about eating disorders and for the first time, understanding that there was a strong genetic component, which is, of course, exactly what happened in our family. Um, 
also understanding that we need to intervene early and the approach with um, family-based treatment is to basically take control of the child's food and intake um, which sounds kind of easy but when you're when you're, your child's 11 years old you know they've been eating on their own for a good eight or nine years since they're two or three years old um, and to also have be having to help somebody eat who who really doesn't want to put food in their mouth and is going to do pretty much anything they can do to get out of it. That was our kind of initial trajectory into the eating disorder world. Um, I, I'd like to say it is a unique um, stance of being both a sufferer and then also being a parent that's put a child through family-based therapy. But maybe I'm thinking that these days that's not going to be quite as unique anymore as we understand more and more the genetic component and the families are get you know right that uh, people that have suffered from the disease have a greater likelihood of them being a caregiver for somebody that is suffering from the disease um but do you do you think that made a large difference for you um having had experience with eating disorders yourself um that's a really good question and and i think you're absolutely right that more and more um, <laughs> you might see second generation or could be third or fourth or fifth um, sufferers becoming carers. And hopefully um, the situation would be like mine in which I had, had re really put it behind me. Um, but having access to this new information, these new resources is a completely different experience. Um, I think if anything, you know, I haven't actually gone into great detail with any of my kids about my own personal experience um, in terms of kind of what it looked like on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't think that's necessary um, for the two in particular who had eating disorders, because if you start understanding how eating disorders work, when people are ill, um, they will pick up any kind of little tip to stay as ill as possible. I mean, the eating disorder is so strong. And, and what's interesting is Emma actually never really asked me about it. She didn't want the dirty details of my experience. Um, so, yeah, I could, uh, I guess in part, you know, I obviously did not want my kids to have to go through anything that I went through. And on the other hand, if I had the experience of an early intervention within four or five months, such as uh, Emma did, I think my path would have been extremely different. Oh, yeah. Um, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have struggled along for 20, almost, yeah, 20 years. Um, and at the same time, you know, you don't wish this on anybody, of course. Um, I, I can't say I have, I wish things had been different back then, of course, but I, I also think all that time and experience and luckily getting healthy and having a nourished, renourished brain, um, I'm on the other side and I hope that my experience can definitely help my own kids. Um, but also other people who, uh, and other parents at this point, I mean, I, I interact more with parents, I would say, yes. um, I'm not a therapist. I, I, I get a lot of requests for, um, kind of support from people who are sufferers and the support I can give is you need a really good therapist and ideally somebody who understands FBT approaches, uh, even if they don't necessarily, um, 
uh, practice 100% FBT, but at least understands that a families need to be involved. Weight restoration early on is critical um, and that sort of thing. So, and I, I think what's great is that families now, because of social media, because of access to information on the internet, um, are getting that kind of support, either from other parents or from recovered people, and the access of you know, the access to information around evidence-based treatments is there, which wasn't there 10 or 15 or 20 or more years ago. So there's a lot of hope. Yeah, and so we've heard um, Emma's account of how family-based therapy in your household operated how it worked and mm-hmm. how she responded to it initially is very different from how she thinks of it now um with her recovered brain i'd love right, to right. um hear you talk a, a little bit about how family-based therapy like how that affected your family how you yes. how you did it um yeah. day-to-day stuff um well you know we my uh, ex-husband lives in the u.s um and i live here in tanzania and um we both read a couple of the kind of seminal books, I think, now. One is by uh, Dr. Locke and, La- Locke and LaGrange, and another by Harriet Brown called Brave Girl Eating. The first one is called How to Help Your Teen Beat an Eating Disorder. So, you know, reasonably intelligent people read these books that say, you know, eating disorders are not your fault. Um, you are not to blame. You need to be involved main goal is to rapidly restore weight of your child and you as a parent can do this it all sounds to some degree pretty easy mm-hmm. but it is it is really tough um, I don't think impossible and that's the thing I'm really really kind of pushing for that I think that where people say oh family-based treatment didn't work I actually think it's more the system that failed them the lack of community support the lack of family support um, the lack of early intervention. So we kind of had a perfect situation in, in the grand scheme of things for Emma in, in which she was diagnosed very early at about four months after demonstrating these symptoms and lose, losing initial amount of weight and then getting um, good, good advice and treatment support from UNC Chapel Hill in the U.S. initially. Um, and then later from um, another therapist, Adriana Rodriguez in Virginia, who helped us in person and on Skype therapy, but, um, it all, it all does sound, you know, easy. It, it is really tough. Um, and I don't want to dissuade anybody cause I think it's, it's very important that you, you jump in and try to make this happen and try to get the best guidance from a therapist that you can, um, trying to feed a kid who doesn't want to eat 4,000 calories a day is really, really difficult. And, I guess the thing is, it's a different kind of parenting. And that's the thing uh, that is tough to initially wrap your head around. So say you had, a, you know, have an infant, and the infant is 24-7 parenting. Um, it's, as everybody who has a kid knows, that having a baby and newborn, it, it's tough. It disrupts your life, and you're 24-7 taking care of that child. But as a child grows, they sort of develop in independence, and they're doing their own thing. When a child has an eating disorder and you jump in with FBT, you, you're, you're, you're taking over everything again. And, of course, the child, like Emma, had her own opinion about things, and she, she wanted to do certain things and didn't want to do other things. And her ED voice or the ED person, persona was, was really strong. So there were a lot of arguments. There was a lot of screaming and yelling. 
And um, I just, you know, I was lucky to have these great therapists support me. I think, if anything, we, ne- we never went into with Emma all sorts of other extraneous things about her family or her dad and I being divorced or or my job or her dad's job or, you know, I think traditional family systems therapy would want to look at all that stuff. No, what we did was just focus on her eating because she needed to get a healthy brain. And that was the number one priority for us. And we just, that was the schedule. I mean, I first thing in the morning, a big breakfast, um, you know, packed her, she was in school then, packed her a lunch, a snack for school. And as I learned later, she was throwing the snack away every day. Um, but I basically sat with her for every one of those five meals and six meals on the weekend and just um, made sure she ate it. Again, it sounds really easy, but, it, you know, I just used every trick in the book. And, and I think that's what we learn as parents doing FBT is sometimes use a carrot, sometimes use a stick. Um, she could get violent. Um, she had a lot of outbursts. It was really emotionally draining. Um, and, you know, I look back on that time, it was tough, but it didn't last forever. So a good six months of hardcore, six times a day feeding, lots of temper tantrums. Um, and then after that, little by little, um, I started seeing Emma's real true personality shine back through. I'm, I mean, I can remember... I think the first time she said, you know, I love you, mom, or she smiled or she laughed after we started this whole process, it was just a huge breakthrough. Or when she asked for something to eat, that probably took almost, I don't know, a year. And, you know, you have these little victories along the way and just want to jump up and down and celebrate. Um, Of course, you can't really say anything because you don't want to draw, at least in my case, we didn't want to draw attention to anything related to the food it it was it's an interesting kind of dichotomy because on one hand it's all about the food to restore the weight on the other hand i didn't want to say oh you did a good job because her ed voice would be like oh my god i ate too much i have to get rid of this one way or the other um and you could see these wheels turning in her brain so you just kind of learn by doing and by having a really supportive therapist who can kind of um, skill you in, in how to address these, these issues that come up. Yeah. I love that you say that you used every trick in the book because, you know, I think that's a large problem initially for many parents is that, you know, they're, they're used to having these really good, honest children and the eating disorder turns us into liars because eating disorders are so devious. So in a way you actually have to become almost as devious as the eating disorder absolutely to to treat it yes that's true and you know I suppose because of my own experience in which while not a lot of people knew and even in my own family um what was going on with me um I know all the tricks Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I you know I was really on it with with Emma um and to her, probably, you know, the ED and the Emma's ED didn't like that very much. Yeah. Um, but, even, you know, looking back now, Emma's actually said, oh, mom, you could have been harder on me. Um, so I think what that speaks to is what she talked about, which is for parents not to worry about the relationship with your child. Of course, uh, things were really intense between us. Because, you know, I'm acting as if I'm a psychiatric nurse, basically, for my daughter. 
And my whole life was re- really revolved around taking care of her. Um, luckily, I had a supportive work situation that, that allowed me to do a lot of my work at home. Um, and if I had to travel, I would take her with me. Um, you really can't, you can't really expect anybody else to feed your child at, at this particular time during at least the first six months. Um, school trips, I was there sleepovers there was only one person that she could spend the night with um, after a few months and and the mom really got it and was able to implement you know feeding her but yes um, I I think we it's really important that parents realize that this period is a pretty short-lived period and try to surround yourself with people who understand and who can support you Um, try to get some meal relief if one person can feed your child you can have an hour or so to go for a walk or, or have a break. Um, it's really important. And that any kind of tension between you and your child is definitely going to dissipate as your child gets better. I mean, in my case, I, we have a great relationship. Um, I'm really astounded and so happy that she's doing well. I mean, there are certainly moments that I wasn't sure she was going to be able to pull out of this. And, um, and that's another thing is sort of how to move into the next phase of giving the child control. It's not a linear path. There's going to be some backsliding. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's, you know, you really, as a parent, you have to kind of keep an eye on things, but at the same time, help your child take these steps for growth. And in our case, um, yeah, I was really scared about like letting Emma go on a plane, for example. I mean, I was the first six, eight months, her dad lives in the U.S. and she would fly back to see him or I would fly over there to, um, for holiday. And there were a couple of occasions where she had to fly on her own. I mean, that gave me just conniption fits because I knew she wouldn't eat. She literally would not eat for 24 hours. So just her flying alone caused me such anxiety. And I I just didn't want to let her do that. And over time that got better. We had a whole plan. Of course, early on, I don't think she followed any of those directions but over time you know she's gotten a lot better at that um a big test was when she went to camp a year after she we started treatment or i think it was a year and a half actually um so yeah it was almost it was almost two years in um and um i was really nervous even though she was really eating well on her own um but that was a that was a good sign she managed that um I'm sure the camp counselors thought I was a complete fruitcake because, you know, I'm asking all these questions like, what time do they eat? How much do they eat? What kinds of foods do you have? Um, you know, just you really have to be overbearing in those early um, months and years. Um, and I, I should also say, um, what was interesting with Emma is that after she was weight restored, so a good year into it, and mind you, we're having Skype therapy every week with myself, her dad and Emma and the therapist, so four of us, sometimes on four different continents practically. Um, And she's, you know, doing well. um, But she then developed um, kind of real social anxiety going into the second year, and she didn't want to go back to school. And I think part of that was that as she was getting better, she maybe felt a bit stigmatized since... Some of the kids knew what was going on. Um, it's a really small school, a very small community we live in. Um, I actually want to talk to her a bit more about that because that's just what I, I think. So she was out of school for six months, and I did homeschooling with her. 
Um, and then she went back to school uh, the second term and, and really did well and really started thriving. But I really had to push her out the door to go back to school. She really, really did not want to go. And I think that's the real balance with the second phase of recovery is how to help the child or adult move back into normal life when they themselves might not be feeling 100% confident that they're going to be okay. And even when you're not 100% confident. Um, so, yeah, we had an experience of her backsliding a bit. She, we did, she really wanted to go to boarding school. So now we're two years into recovery. Um, her school is a really small school here in Tanzania. And she was starting to look forward to what she wanted to do next. So she really, really wanted to go. And I, again, was quite nervous about this. Um, but the camp experience kind of indicated, okay, she can eat on her own. Spoke to everybody under the sun at the boarding school. I'm sure, again, they thought I was kind of a nutcase. Um, and she, she went to boarding school. And she did seem to really enjoy it initially, but she had some backsliding. Um, of course, it was, you know, a big change for her. She's an outgoing child and very confident. But, of course, being away from home for the first time ever and um, being in a completely different country, a different system... Um, she had one time where she just stopped eating for four or five days. And we found out about it later in a therapy session. Of course, I'm about having a nervous breakdown thinking, oh, my God, this is if she really starts slipping, I'm getting her home right away. Maybe it's time we go back to the U.S. and I you know, try to we, we need to hit this even harder. Um, but on the surface, I, I felt that she could do it and I wanted to give her that feeling of confidence so I, I was pretty tough. I said, okay, Emma, I want you to, you know, pull on all your reserves, every possible reserve. You know how to deal with this. You know what to do when you have these ED feelings. If, if it doesn't work, okay, you always know, you can always come home and we'll try something else. But I think, you know, at that point, so we're two and a half years into, or two years into recovery then. And um, yeah, it really turned around for her. And, and I should say she also started taking a low dose of an anti-anxiety medication, um, Ciprolex, which I think is Lexapro in the U.S. Um, and I also see that, saw, see that as having had a really important effect on her. Um, her anxiety reduced significantly, um, and that allowed her to be able to have better control over making sure she ate all the time and when she was supposed to. And not kind of spinning out of control. So that's another thing I think, you know, the FBT is great. It really, really worked well for us. And I think there are times when other approaches to treatment, whether it's pharmacology or if some higher levels of care might be necessary for a short period of time, um, the main point is throw everything you can at it and hit it as hard and early as possible. Um, and as you can hear from Emma's podcast, it's pretty amazing that three years later, someone who pretty much had the exact same symptoms that I had back then is in, you know, 99.9% .9 recovered. And even as she says herself, she'll be continuing along this process um, for a while, but she's, she's not acting on any of these um, ED voice um, issues. And she keeps her weight up. And she knows what to do if she starts running into any problem related to anxiety or anything else. Yeah, she really does sound competent, so competent. And also what came across so much for me talking to her was just how grateful she is to you and um, her dad 
for, for doing that. Yeah. She understands how hard it was for you. That's the thing. She gets it. She understands how difficult it was for you guys and is so grateful for you doing that for her. Yeah. Yeah, that was nice to hear. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, when you're really in the trenches in those early months and years, it just feels it's very isolating and it, it's really tough. Um, and at the same time, I think it's so important, just as you do in other areas of parenting, is really separate the behavior from the child. And in this case, with eating disorder, it's really a mental illness issue. It's biologically based. You can't blame them. Can't feel guilty yourself. You just need to plow through, knowing that on the other side, things are going to be much, much better. And I think that's it's what's so cool right now in the eating disorder field, because up until a few years ago, the stories you hear are often these really horrific stories with very bad endings. Um, and not to be making any light of this, I mean, this could have happened to any of, of us in my family who were affected. High rates of suicide, um, you know, we know that at least now, up to now, one-third of people die, one-third will recover, and one-third kind of percolate along in kind of substandard quality of living. Um, and now we really have an opportunity with eating disorders to turn things around really quickly um, and not have those sort of negative outcomes. And, and so I think a lot of the policy, I hope that as it goes forward, in the U.S. and in other countries can look at these kind of family and community-based models of treatment that are relatively low cost and have very high rate, high outcome, positive outcome rates, um, and, and kind of hit the low-hanging fruit and really address early on kids who are, you know, sometimes 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old um, to avert further entrenched illness and at the same time, you know, a higher awareness of investment and mental health in general and hopefully addressing kind of more entrenched eating disorders. I think there's another message is that you can recover at any age, any time. Um, it's a hell of a lot easier if you start early. Yeah, the point is that you can recover at any time or age. And I think for us right now, the imperative is really getting these early diagnoses and early treatment in place. Um and kind of investing more in community and family-based approaches, um, which seems kind of like a no-brainer, yet, um, and this is kind of my big beef right now on an advocacy policy level as a parent activist, as a survivor activist, is that these solutions that we have are not being widely implemented. And I feel that, and particularly in the U.S., there's a huge um, architecture of behavioral health interventions that kind of rely on these intensive inpatient or residential treatment programs, which may be needed, certainly. Um, at the same time, there's a lot that can be done at a much lower level, either before that or, you know, stepping down after that. It's absolutely essential. So, you know, I'm really hoping that we can start seeing some overt change in policy um, with new focus on addressing mental health and mental health re reform to expanding access to these low-cost, 
highly effective evidence-based treatment models. Yeah, and Amy, um, I know that you're doing wonderful things in the world of advocacy. If there's anybody listening to this that can agree with what we're saying there and wants to get more involved or learn more about that, where would be the place for them to go to find out more? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, along with yourself and a couple of other people, we started something called International Eating Disorders Action in 2014, and that's an online activism resource and global group of, of people. It's on Facebook, and uh, there's a website, www.iedaction.weebly.com, and the Facebook is International Eating Disorders Action. And another really cool spinoff out of that was that sometime last year, a bunch of family members and affected people were brainstorming online um, about the fact that we need to really expand awareness globally. And somebody, one of us, took a look um, at the International Days of Awareness. Come to find out there was no World, in- World Eating Disorders Day, which I find shocking given the high, you know, the high uh, rates of mortality among eating disorders, the fact that every culture, every society, every gender, every race, Every age, um, we see people affected by eating disorders here, here in Tanzania, plenty of people with eating disorders. Um, so we decided to start something called World Eating Disorders Day, and that's found online at www.worldeatingdisordersday.org. And we're also on Facebook, same name, Twitter, Instagram. The day is June 2nd. We had the first one in 2016, and... Millions of people around the world were reached. In just a few short months, we brought together over 200 organizations from 40 countries, completely 100% volunteer grassroots activists run. And this year, I'm hoping that we can really take off and bring in even more people. Um, we even had a PSA done by Keanu Reeves and Lily Collins, and which was great, um, and you can find that on the website as well. So really, really welcoming as many people who want to get involved. Yeah, and I will link to all of those things in the show notes. Awesome. Oh, Amy, thank you. You're welcome. Any- all right, so that was a pretty complete story. We heard from Emma last week from a 15-year-old who is well on her way through recovery from anorexia with family-based therapy. And we've spoken to her mum, Amy, today about how that family-based therapy was implemented, how they went and researched and found out about it and then put it into action and got their daughter well as a result of doing so. I really hope that inspires anybody out there that's on the fence about family-based therapy and learn more and use the community, online communities are there to support you and help you. I'm going to link to all of those things in the show notes. I also plan to get Amy back on in a couple of weeks' time, and we'll talk more about the advocacy work that um, we're involved in. It's important stuff. This is mental health, and that's everyone's health. Mental health affects all of us, and getting mental health recognized, insured, and getting rid of the stigma, stigma around it is something that's very close to my heart, very close to Amy's, and other people that you've already heard in this podcast series like J.D. Allett. 
So thanks for listening. You can follow me. My name's Tabitha Farrar, and I'm on Twitter. It's at love underscore fat underscore. I'm going to link to all of the International Eating Disorder Advocacy Group Twitter handles and Facebooks as well in the show notes of this episode. Please subscribe in um, the iTunes store and maybe give me a rating if you like the podcast. And until next time, cheers and cheerio.